Welcome to In the Queue. I am your host, Andrew, and I have done more reading since owning a Kindle than I probably did in the last 15 years of my life. And I'm Phil, your other co-host, and I gave up reading a long time ago. Really? Is that true? <laughs> it kind of is true, actually. I mean, not, oh, that not, makes... not all reading, but I haven't read like fiction, for example, in a, a very long time. You should get a Kindle. Yeah, well. That's what did it for me. It, uh, like, you know, I know that the book purists will probably hate that, but. Well, I mean, I, I, I think people stare at, at screens too much. You know, if I'm going to read something, I would read a book. It just so happens that I just, I don't, I don't see what books have to offer me anymore. It's really sad, actually. <laughs> it is kind of sad. But the reason that we're talking about all of this is because we're doing another listener request today. The listener request was brought to us by Aaron, and the movie is Ruby Sparks, yes. a movie from 2012. And Aaron is here with us. Say hi, Aaron. Hello, everyone. Hey. Uh, yeah, thanks for joining us for, for this episode. We really appreciate it. Sure. Uh, we're going to have, I hope, a very lively discussion about Ruby Sparks, but uh, maybe uh, before we get into the details of it, can you tell us a little bit about why you chose this movie for us to watch? Uh, yeah, I actually, I only saw it because I had a free pass. I mean, I probably would have gone to see it anyway, but I don't think it actually came here. Uh, but yeah, I went and saw You're it. You're in St. Louis, Louis yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I thought it was just, uh, super unique and, um, you know, kind of like her, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Sort of like her. So you, yep, you, yeah. you actually, you, uh, you came across this film after you saw her, so it's a different sort of a chronology. No, no, no. If you had passes to see it, you would have seen it in yeah, the it, theater. I saw it in theaters. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was just, that would have been in 2012. Yeah, 2012. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah so and I thought it was just fantastic. And yeah, and of course, Paul Dano. I, I love Paul Dano so much. So. And here's yeah. a role where you can, you can actually see Paul Dano in a role where he is heroic, where he's the... Yeah, he's not playing like a feckless jerk. Yeah, he's, <laughs> right. he's like the leading man. He's the heartthrob. And yeah, he's it not, makes sense. It makes sense because because Zoe Kazan and him are boyfriend and girlfriend in real life. Yeah. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, she, she wrote the film for them both to star in. Oh, wow. Did not know that either. I yeah. knew she wrote it, but I didn't know about the previous connection. Indeed. Well, let's tell you a little bit about the movie itself. Then the movie concerns a character named Calvin Weirfields. That is the character that Paul Dano plays. And he was a very successful, sort of prematurely successful, maybe, young writer who at the age of 19 had a uh, number one bestseller uh, that everybody went crazy for. And um, the movie takes place about 10 years after that. And Calvin is in, he is being pressured by his agent and uh, the publishing company to create the next great novel. Because this, this, first novel that he had was considered to be possibly the the great the next great american novel right like the new catcher in the rye for this new catcher in the, for the rye. new generation yeah and he is feeling pressured and has a terrible case of writer's block and uh one day has awakes from his slumber uh and in that slumber was having a dream about a woman mm. a mysterious woman that uh reached out to him and uh he describes this dream to his brother. His brother doesn't think too much of it. In fact, ridicules him for not even being able to get laid 
in his dreams. Right, because apparently uh, his brother is like the diametric opposite of him in every way. Yeah. He's just he's like, he's a meathead. He's you know he just you know all he ever asks him about is like how much pussy he's getting you know whatever right. uh, the case may be. And Chris and, Messina does a great job of that. Oh yeah, he does. No, I, Chris Messina's fantastic. I actually yeah. think the scenes with between the two of them that are sprinkled throughout the movie are among the most resonant scenes in the whole film. Like the relationship, they're really they, great. They have there's there's so much sort of believability and depth to their scenes when they're talking to each other. I, it's just... Agreed. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit pithier even than his interactions with Ruby Sparks. Right. Who, as you may have gathered, uh, is the, the person in this dream that he had, and he starts to write about her. Um, at the insistence of his therapist, he, he needs to get out just, just a, a page, just a, just a short little nothing about this girl in his dreams and a page turns into many many sleepless nights in a row where he just continues to write and write and write and write and then all of a sudden ruby sparks the girl that he is writing about is there Mm. in his apartment she has materialized in real life and he is shocked at first not but then when he Naturally, but then as, as he starts to realize that he not only he's not seeing her, that in fact other human beings can actually see her as well, he starts to develop a relationship with her and decide that this is his dream girl and this he should go along with it. Um, the sort of trick to it all being that because he wrote her, he can change her mm. and change who she is and what she does. And at, at his brother Harry, played by Chris Messina. At his brother Harry's insistence, he, they, in a, in a pretty great scene, I think, discover that, uh, that if he just types more information into the story, it changes the way that she behaves and who she is. And he is using an old school typewriter as well. He is. is awesome. He is. Yeah. Which is great. Uh, and so the rest of the film plays out uh, as he, him sort of being this kind of very antisocial character who is very deals with the world by trying to control everything in his own life. Mm. He discovers that even the creation that he has made has its own feelings and its own desires and its own wishes. And perhaps he should relinquish some of that control, but that's, that's, that's getting pretty far down the road. Right. And there's something interesting about Ruby Sparks too. It's, it's, Sort of like an example of the difference between story versus plot, whereas yeah. uh, Ruby Sparks doesn't quite have a a plot to to sort of drive the engine of the film. It's really just the story about this writer and his fantasy girlfriend, and and the characters that they meet, and and sort of this. It's basically follows their relationship, and it, it's the script. I think is actually quite smart. And it was I agree. written I agree. by Zoe Kazan, as we mentioned. Who stars as Ruby Sparks. Right. So she's actually, she's a real double threat, at least. Double, triple. Double threat. Well, triple threat if you consider that she's also the granddaughter of Elia Kazan. <laughs> That's very threatening. Yeah. The great uh, director who was also reviled in Hollywood for his naming names right at the uh, during the uh, house on american activities committee hearings back in the 50s the mccarthy days right so but zoe kazan has emerged unscathed ladies and gentlemen 
Indeed. Um, and so, yeah, but this the direction is is uh, done by the the people who directed Little Miss Sunshine, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And um, I think that they did a, a fine job. There's a couple things that I wanted to mention that I really liked about the way they told the story. Um, one was when we visit with Calvin's parents, the way that they reveal who the parents are, I thought was was kind of delightful because we we when they actually get to the house, they don't we don't know who they are. We don't know who the actors are, and then. When they arrive, we hear this woman screaming in delight, and then she she runs out of the bushes, and it's Annette Benning. And we see her when she pops her face down by the window, and we're like, right. "Oh, this is a great reveal." But then the even better reveal <laughs> is when they uh, they say, "Well, let's go see Mort." You know, Mort is the I assume Calvin's Mort. stepfather, <laughs> yeah. not his biological father, for reasons which you're about to find out. Um, he's he's got a chainsaw and he's making driftwood furniture, and and after he turns off the saw and and lifts up his, you know, protective mask. And it's Antonio Banderas. <laughs> the greatest beard ever. With a great yeah, like, with a... salt and pepper beard. Oh, and it's glasses. Great. And so I thought that was that was a really amusing sort of thing that they did uh, yeah. in telling the story. But there's so much to talk about, so much more weighty themes to talk about with this movie. Um, so we were going to talk a little bit about the comparison between this film and films like Her, which came a year later, and also a film which may have been a predecessor in some way to <laughs> this movie, which was Weird Science. Yeah. And I'm sure there's other films out there, too, that have the same sort of, like, gimmick, you know, where you've... Oh, uh, yeah, almost certainly. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it goes back to, like, Bride of Frankenstein, or, you know, even... Or birth, <laughs> there's a scene in Birth of a Nation that just, like, echoes this completely... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're like the Lumiere brothers made a, a very short, uh-huh. you know, one minute yeah. clip. Anyway, so I, this is what I observed because I saw her and then I saw this movie. Now, both films deal with an introverted, lonely male protagonist who uh, sort of amazingly or unprecedentedly receives uh, a female companion who is entirely under his control. Yes. And that's how it seems at first anyway. The difference between her and Ruby Sparks is while they have a similar sort of basic story, her gives you a lot to think about and is a comment on how technology influences our personal lives. Whereas in Ruby Sparks, it's the imagination of the main character that drives the relationship yeah. that they have. So you've got sort of two things that are not, you know, completely on equal, um, equal context. But um, in both films, the, the affair that they have gets complicated, and it just goes to show that there's no such thing as a perfect relationship, um, yeah. even in, you know, with modern technology or with absolute power over, <laughs> over human beings. Right. Um, so I thought that was an interesting way. And I don't know if, if, the, if Spike Jones was at all influenced by Ruby Sparks. I'm thinking he might not have been, because when he won the Oscar, Spike Jones said that he had been working on the film for three years, so it's possible that they weren't uh, quite aware of, of what the other was doing. But uh, well, it's it's one of those serendipitous things where you know pe- two people are having the same idea come to fruition at the same time. I mean, there's lots of examples of that happening, like when Capote and uh, Infamous yeah. came out the same year. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite like it, or the or when Ants and a Bug's Life came out the same year. <laughs> exactly like that. Um, yeah, just like that. 
No, but I, I think that you're you're right. Like there there are a lot of similar similarities between these films. I think certainly the narrative arc of both films is very similar. Right. Um in terms of of where the rising and the falling action are, where the climax comes, sort of what is discovered at that climax by the protagonist, um, are, are very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but but I thought that this was, uh, in some ways, you know, maybe not quite as stylish a film as her. You know, it wasn't quite as sexy in sort of the way it looked and the production design and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. But even so, I mean, uh, the cinematographer on this was Matthew Libatique. Yeah. Who has done a lot of fantastic work and it actually looks really good. It just doesn't have that kind of really stylized uh, appearance of a movie like her. Well, you know, his apartment, Calvin's apartment is is a fascinating building. And yeah. And in a way it, it mirrors his sort of frenetic, neurotic state of mind. I mean, all those great shots where where he would be coming down that staircase you know, yeah. and or, or or like peering out from the second floor at, at what's going on below. Like it just seemed almost like a sort of like a game, like the the, uh, the board game in in uh, Mousetrap. You know, it was sort of like it was like a cage almost. Like you had the well, I, the st- I think it was meant to feel that way. No, I totally agree with for you. For Ruby Sparks, it becomes a cage because he he desires to to sort of keep her. It actually right. goes in kind of a funny. Uh, bookends where like at the beginning he doesn't want her to leave because he's terrified uh, that you know he's going to be out there on the streets talking to himself mm-hmm. basically and at the end he doesn't want her to leave because he doesn't want her to leave him yeah you know you were going to say something Aaron. i was just saying it's a uh, his him trying to compartmentalize her. yeah absolutely yeah definitely i mean uh, and, it, and it feels that like the 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 Apartment itself is so right. compartmentalized. Yeah, Matthew Libatique has done a lot of work with Darren Aronofsky, and he's done a he lot has. of very visually beautiful work. But, but I think what we're all sort of getting at is, is in Ruby Sparks, it's not about the sort of the opulent visual beauty of the film, as much as it's about showing how people are enclosed in these spaces, um, and showing how like the, the the architecture and the 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 layout, the feng shui, uh, is a, is a mirror to their inner life. How's that? How's that sound? Yeah. No, that's great. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, Love I, it. I went to Duke. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, like I, I think that the I think also the performances should be mentioned in this film. Just because I think they're great. Yeah, I think that Zoe Kazan is for me a revelation. I don't think I've seen her in anything else that I can recall or at least. Yeah, I don't think yeah. she's really you know, Done it no, she's done, she's done a lot of stage work. I know that she has done a, a great amount of stage work uh, and quite a bit of it here in New York. She's in a new uh, movie though that like just came out called What If. Well, oh yeah, the yeah, yeah she's in that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that though, so Neither I wouldn't have, have known. I, yeah, well, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have been familiar with her work at least. But I, I think she does a great job. I think she plays it uh, plays the character perfectly, and and the the role because of the fact that she is. Uh, being controlled and has to sort of make changes on a dime. I think uh, she does a very admirable job of of uh, really hitting the range of this character. It's like because mm-hmm. she, she has to really, really do some really impressive uh, sort of theatrics. changes of yeah theatrics. Yeah, just changes of of tactics or changes of attitude or changes of feeling, especially in what? the 
in the climactic, climactic scene, scene. Yeah. yeah, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, yeah, up until is... the climactic scene, though, I have to admit that I was a little bit annoyed with her, and not really? not so much annoyed with her character that she was playing, but with her herself, because I was thinking that in a way, she was writing this role so that she could have fun playing this character, this fantasy girl, and 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 be the focus of the film. And I was I was thinking like while she was doing a good job. I was thinking that it was a bit of a vanity move on her part, almost like a fading, we'll a fading gigolo move by John Turturro. In this case, it was by uh, Zoe Kazan. But, 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 what I was going to say. Wait, 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 wait. Aaron was going to say. Okay, yeah, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say, I didn't, I didn't think that at all. Uh, I, yeah, I thought it was all Paul Dano. I mean, up, up well, to yeah. a certain point, at least. I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. I, all, you think it was all Paul Dano in the sense that he was the star? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, I mean, she was great, but I, it was all about him coming to terms with himself. Yeah, yeah. And his performance is spot on. This might be my oh. favorite Paul Dano performance. Well, he's there will be other, blood other, than, we... other than there will be blood, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. He's much more likable in this role than any other film I've ever seen him in, ever. But I still like him better in There Will Be Blood. Well, I mean, he's like yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's great at being a terrible person. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. It's true. But when Zoe Kazan does undergo that climactic scene, what what really impressed me and, and reversed any of the doubts that I had about her sort of any 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 for what her intentions might have been, whether they were narcissistic or whatever, in creating this film for her to star in, is that she showed how this character. Um, was actually being completely like it was a puppet, a puppet, yeah, a, mar- a marionette, and yeah. uh, under the control of, of of Calvin. So what happens in this climactic scene that we're talking about is that um, she she's no longer sort of this fantasy iconic beautiful girl anymore because Paul Dano's character Calvin is getting sort of fed up with her and he's getting perhaps disillusioned and we can definitely interpret this in different ways he's he's terrified that she's going to leave him yeah and so he starts to to type frenetically at his typewriter of the gods and and make her stay well, this is after this is after he has tried various different tactics uh essentially changing her personality and having it yeah basically he's overcompensating in one direction he's not or another satisfied no matter what happens so he continuously changes her until she's yeah, she's a, you know, not a monster, but she becomes something that he can't eat, wrap his head around. Yeah, exactly. And and really, the 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 catalyst for this particular scene is the fact that he sort of reset her back to normal, and that's when he gets scared. Is that when she's at normal, then she isn't always this loving, doting mm-hmm. creature. She's a human being. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what he can't or he deal with. He just thinks it. that she's disillusioned with him, which is. Yeah, yeah which is a human to, being. Like yeah. that's it's it's her a, it's her life. It's her decision to make. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's something similar happens in her in the sense that Joaquin Phoenix's character suddenly discovers that this operating system which he thought was devoted only to him is actually servicing like thousands and thousands of other customers. Yeah, it's like like she says I'm I'm with like 700 other yeah. people right yeah. this second or whatever right. it is. And so while and he's, well that's, uh, the, that's that scene's a great well, scene yeah. too down at the bottom of that escalator with all the people walking past. That is a great scene. Well, I, oh, so and he looks around and sees that everybody else has a little 
device in their ear and he realizes <laughs> that every single person around him is probably having a relationship with their operating system right that moment. Oh, it's great. Yeah, that's a good one. So, so refer to our, we actually reviewed that movie, folks, uh, last fall. If you want to check it out, we definitely had a, uh, a nice discussion about her. Um, but let's talk a little bit about what do you think was going through Calvin's mind while he was doing these, these abrupt changes. He would type her, type her commands and she would immediately do them. And I've read a little bit on, on the message boards for this film that somebody interpreted his actions as he was like, he was relishing it with orgasmic glee. Controlling I her, and I don't agree with that either. But what do you guys think? Are you you talking about in uh, throughout the movie or in the final? No, in 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 the final scene. Um, yeah, no, I well the climax. Yeah, scene, yeah, yeah, not the not the final scene. Um, the final scene's great and very yeah optimistic. <laughs> yeah, but I I think that what what were you saying, Aaron? Yeah, about no the final scene. I yeah, I just think that he's he can't deal with himself at that point. It's all it's all very I, reflective. I, I agree. I, I think it's a very uh, it's very like an inwardly focused rage, and in some ways it it reminds me of uh, any number of other movies where uh, somebody will get to a, a breaking point and abuse their partner, yeah. and and that's their like moment of clarity is like they they sort of realize that they're a monster, and that's when they're able to sort of change themselves this i think this was exactly that it, this was an it, it was essentially a, a scene about you know domestic abuse mm -hmm. but it was done with this conceit of the writer and the the words being able to control the person but because you know abuse is so often about control that's exactly what this was and that's how i read it you know i think it can also be read a little bit darker and more Ooh. explicitly you could even sort of liken the whole scene, especially when he starts frantically typing on his computer. Or I don't know, if, is it a computer at that point or is it still a typewriter? No, no, it's still, it's still a, a typewriter. Okay, regardless, so he's typing on the, the keyboard and calling up all these commands for this woman to act out for him. And you could even read it in a way as he's like, he's online, you know, like he's, he's, he's like typing what he, what he wants and then it's delivered directly to him automatically as if it was on like a porn site or like a, a chat room or, or a, a webcam or something, you know, like he's he is getting instant Maybe. gratification for exactly what he's looking for. But see, I don't think he's getting gratification. I think that that's the whole the crux of that scene is that he is not getting any pleasure out of it. I don't think he looks I don't think there's anything in the movie to support that he is finding that pleasurable at all. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very self-destructive. Like he, because I mean, this relationship is everything to him, and he's destroying it in seconds. Yeah, and on that whole, through that whole scene, he's on the verge of tears. You can see it in his face. It's again a great performance by Paul Dano, mm -hmm. and and he is he's he's tearing himself apart by doing what he's doing to her. Yeah, I mean, and that's I, that's why immediately at the end of that scene, that's when he writes this beautiful passage that I won't reveal, you know, just for the sake of keeping some of this movie spoiler free for people. Um, the, the, the passage that he writes at the end of that is, is very beautiful and is the sort of catalyst for the rest of the film, for the, for the denouement to kind of take right. place. Mm. And, uh, and I think that that's, 
he's he's thinking about that the entire time he's doing what he's doing but he knows that he is he is destroying his relationship with her while he's doing it and he knows that this is the end and that he can't pass this it's it's done mm-hmm. i think he knows that throughout and i think it's killing him that it's that it's killing her basically interesting yeah well i think that one thing that i definitely sort of have to you know notice and we've all been talking about this is that he he, he does he is maliciously basically just making her bend to his will and whether it's because he hates himself or because he's he is deriving some kind of satisfaction from it i think he is on some level deriving some satisfaction i'm not saying he's you know it's like he's he's not getting he's not sort of having a sexual experience by by doing it but i feel like you know pornography is in a way uh, definitely about control and um, yeah, that's true that's I true think that there is while this is this is sort of like almost approaching metaphorical territory in this scenario where um you know where he is sitting impassively at this keyboard and he is just he's he's just moving his fingers and he's doing it and watching her whole body like contort and and throw itself against the wall and all that um, right so it's 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 violent and it's sexually violent for her i think uh, yeah, but not as much for him. And that's yeah, and that's where that's where I think my abuse metaphor comes in. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that that's I think that's what it's honestly meant to be. Yeah. Well, we yeah. we were going to compare this movie to Weird Science, but uh, we may have <laughs> run out of time. I'm I'm not sure that there's that much we could say other than the fact that Weird Science is about a couple of dudes who create their dream woman in their computer. And then when she comes to life in real life, they realize it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. This has got to be an archetypal story. I don't know what any killers in this one. Uh, what? Oh, you mean versus weird (laughs) science versus weird science. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, there's There's not the whole other, uh, you know, literature is the killer or whatever. (laughs) Right, right, right. Um, Steve Coogan is the killer. I think (laughs) Steve Coogan. Yeah. Speaking of which, there's a lot of great uh, like small cameos like or, or small roles in this. Steve Coogan's in it. Asif Manvi's in it. Would, Deborah yes. Ann Wool, from, uh, who I'm totally in love with, uh, from True Blood. Uh, I was going to mention that Gould, if you didn't. So. Alia Shawkat. Like, all of these people are really, like, you know, they're solid actors who've done a lot of good work. Yeah. And they all make very small bit part uh, contributions to this film, and they're great. I really liked it. I mean, at one point I told myself that I liked it even better than her. I mean, they're different movies, wow. different impacts. Um, but I, yeah. I think maybe if you liked her, then you might want to check out Ruby Sparks, especially if you think that you know it's something that uh, something that we've talked about that might strike your fancy. Yeah, and I loved it too. And I think that this is one of those films that sort of flew under the, everybody's radar. And it's one of those films that in today's film landscape is so easy to get lost like people it's one of those things that it's just easy for people to ignore or not think too much about studios have a hard time marketing films like this they don't really understand how to do it anymore they did once upon a time but now they only know how to market about two or three different kinds of films it's true (laughs) if it's not a superhero movie or a rom-com like they don't even know what to do with it 
Yeah, they all have the same poster, which is terrifying. <laughs> Uh, but but I think that this is really actually a real gem, and I'm very very glad that you suggested it to us, Aaron. Yeah. I, I really am because because yeah, I, I thought really it was I, I it really saddened me that nobody saw it. Yeah. Well, now yeah. now three people have seen it. Yeah. <laughs> At least. Yeah. And hopefully, some of our other listeners will check it out because uh, I think that all three of us are saying it is definitely worth it. Yes, Indeed. Right. It's worth your time. So. Uh, thanks so much for listening. That was our episode on Ruby Sparks. If you join us for our next episode, we will be talking about yet another new release. This one being the latest film by Roman Polanski, Venus in Fur. Yep. And and next week actually will be our little mini Roman Polanski week because we have a, uh, a listener request for another Roman Polanski film carnage that nice. came out a few years ago nice. yeah so we'll be talking about both of those next week so we do hope you'll join us for that uh aaron we wanted to thank you again for your suggestion i think i think you're in competition with monty who was on last week for uh most suggestions oh. for films we'll have to do something uh, to about that <laughs> <laughs> yep yep you guys are in a race you you two and christy are in like a three-way race uh for for most suggestions so and you suggested some some very good films that we've watched, Princess Mononoke, which uh, yeah. Phil had had never seen, yeah, um, uh, which was fantastic. Um, That's about what it. else? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a couple. We're gonna of other watch ones Happiness. You requested Happiness, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll be doing that soon. <laughs> fantastic. Oh yeah, I, and I haven't seen it since I saw it back in college. So really, that was last time. I saw yeah, it. I haven't did watched not, it. Again. Did we not watch it? No, I didn't watch it with you. Man. So me and Andrew yeah. watched it together because we went to the same school. Yeah, yeah, and we loved it. But uh, we'll we'll have to take a look at it again when we get to that point. Okay. So again, thank you all. Thank you to Aaron, and we will catch you next time around. <laughs>